This is Gene Wilhelm, and today we'll be studying the readings for the sixth Sunday of Easter on May 17th, 2020 is when we will be celebrating that. As I usually do, I will begin with the gospel, and then I'll go to the first reading and to the second reading. And finally, we will go to the uh, uh, the uh, responsorial psalm, if, if there's time. And uh, the reason I typically do this is because during the Easter period in particular, the readings are in read or that we will study in the order in which the events took place. And the question that we have for this sixth Sunday is, how obedient are we to Jesus? How much do we love him that we are obedient? And Jesus has told us that he will give us what he needs, what we need to be obedient. So let's begin with the, the gospel. The gospel is from John chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. And he, Jesus begins off, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, this shouldn't surprise us that, that he would say this because he said in, uh, in John 15, just a chapter or so down, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love as I have kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this, that you, my own joy may be in you and your joy be complete. This is my commandment, love another, one another as I have loved you. That's John 15, 10 to 12. And then a few verses down from there, it says in John 15, 17, my commandment to you is to love one another. So this is the primary commandment that Jesus has given us. And uh, Paul has told us also that, that, that all of the commandments can be summed up in, or I'm sorry, Jesus has told us that, uh, that the two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, that is the summary of all the commandments that there are there. So, so I invite you to think about that as to how much you actually listen to God's commandments and what you do with those commandments when you hear them. And he says, I will ask the Father. So Jesus isn't saying he's going to do it on his own. He's doing it according to the will of the Father and letting the Father take command of this to give you another advocate. Now, that word advocate is parakletos, which means an intercessor or a counselor, uh, someone who's called to one side. Uh, some people say it's like having a defense attorney. And why would we need a defense attorney? We would need a defense attorney, attorney pardon me, when we are confronted with evil the, and the evil one, the accuser, uh, that's the, one of the names of the devil, is the accuser. And we, we need that Holy Spirit to be with us, that advocate to be with us. And he says, the spirit of truth. Well, he says, Jesus has told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus' spirit is a spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept. Now, you don't have to look very far in our culture today to see that the world does not accept God's word. The world does not accept Jesus as Savior. The, the world does not accept God's commandments as something to be obeyed. And so we, he's telling us that the world is not going to be able to accept this, but because it is, it, the world neither sees him nor knows him. Who does the world not see or know? <clears throat> Excuse me. Do not see or know the Father. And if you remember from this last week, 
uh, we were asked when we were studying, uh, both uh, Thomas and Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father, show them the Father. And he says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Well, for us, who are some 2,000 years later, we haven't seen either the Father or the Son. But Jesus, as he said to Thomas, uh, when Thomas uh, put his finger in the sands of, uh, sides of, side of Jesus and his hands, Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. So we've got a challenge beyond what the apostles did. And so, but you know him because he remains with you. Do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you know this advocate in your life is a question that we can really ask ourselves. And if we don't, what do we need to do to get to where we can know them? And why don't you know him? Because he's there with you. And then Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. Now, these, these disciples, remember disciple means learner or student, are thinking that Jesus is going to be gone and they're not going to have anybody. But Jesus is saying in here, really, that my father will be your father. My spirit will be your spirit. So I am going to... You are not going to be left alone. My father is going to be your father. And I'm going to give you my spirit so you can live the kind of life that I live. And then he goes on to say, In a little while you will see me no longer, no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live. So Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection, and he's talking about the time between his resurrection and his ascension. And he's talking about eternal life as well. Then he says, whoever has, my, whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. Let's look at John 15, 4. John 15, 4 tells us that that's that abiding, the, the oneness between Jesus and us that he desires, the oneness between Jesus and us that gives us life, the oneness between Jesus and us, which is true love. We must have faith to be able to live this out. And we can pray with the father of the son of the little boy, who the epileptic who Jesus healed in John, or pardon me, Mark chapter 9. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And finally, Jesus tells us in this gospel that Whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. How is Jesus going to do this? Jesus is going to do this because he's going to do it through the Spirit. He's going to do it through the, the preaching and, and the words that we have from the apostles to tell us all about Jesus so that we can have this picture of him painted, which is a very and it's not just a picture. Jesus is to come alive in our lives, and we just need, really need to be able to do that. But it's not always easy to do that, is it? Now, let's, let's see what happened here, because the, let's go into the book of Acts, the first reading, which is Acts chapter 8, verses 5 uh, through 8 and 14 through 17. And... Uh, these all reading, these this whole set of readings readings is really 
a preparation from us, for us from the church to be able to be ready for the, the Feast of the Ascension and the Feast of Pentecost. Now, we've been following a little bit about what Philip has been doing. And Philip, remember, is one of the seven deacons that were appointed when the Hellenists complained that they weren't getting their fair share because the Hebrews were providing more for their needy than for the Greek needy or the, the, the non-Jewish needy. And so our experience is probably a little different from what we see with Philip. Uh, we don't seem to see the miracles going on that, that we see that Philip had. And there's, why is that? Because isn't the Holy Spirit just as alive and active in our lives as he was in the lives of the early Christians? And the question I always come to is that, and the answer that I have is to the why, is that I keep the Holy Spirit locked up, that I want to be in control rather than to give the Holy Spirit control of my life. So let's look down, look at these scripture readings in, in Acts and realize that it says Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And remember again that until the time of Stephen's stoning, the Christians at that time, the disciples, and for the most part, all those converts that were in Jerusalem pretty well stayed in Jerusalem. They didn't leave the relative safety of the city of Jerusalem. They wanted to be where it was at. And when Stephen was stoned, they tended to be dispersed because they didn't want to be stoned like Stephen. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Down is a, it, it, it's not only a physical down from the Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It's also down from the center of religion. So he went down to the city of Samaria. Now remember, Samaria is that area that was in the Old Testament, early Old Testament, was the capital of the northern kingdom, which was deported by the Assyrians and uh, home of the 12 tribes, probably the 10 tribes. So he went down to Samaria. And in Jesus's time, remember, he met the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four. So the Samaritans were kind of Jewish and kind of not. They, they weren't uh, Orthodox Jews in the sense that they did not uh, hold to all the doctrines of Judaism. They dropped some things, they added some things. And because the, the people of Samaria at Jesus's time weren't full-blooded Jews, they were people brought in by the Assyrians to repopulate that area of uh, the, the Holy Land after they had deported the uh, Israelites that had been living there, except for a few that remained and a few that were brought back to make sure that, that the God of the land could be satisfied. So he went there and he, and he proclaimed the Christ to them. Now, the, isn't it interesting? He says, the Christ. Remember, Christ is the Greek, the Greek word is, uh, means anointed just as the Hebrew word for that we translate as anointed is, is really uh, how we translate it, literate it into Messiah. So he's pre preaching the Messiah to them. So the Samaritans were also looking for the Messiah because if you remember uh, 
with the woman at the well, she was looking for the Messiah too and talked to Jesus about that. Now it says with one accord, the crowds paid attention to what Philip was, was said by Philip. Paying attention, they, they, they focused. They focused on what Philip said. It's interesting to me that this Jew, full Jew, although Philip was probably Greek by birth, Jew by religion, was able to keep their attention. We see in this that even among the people who were not fully Jewish, there was a great hunger for something more than what they had. Much like the hunger that we see in our own culture today, that people are turning to this, that, and the other thing because they are really hungry for God. As as St. Augustine tells us, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in you. And these people are hungry. And then it says that, for, and they heard it, and they saw the signs that he was doing. Now let's look at, back at John chapter 14, where we, we just were, and uh, see John chapter, well, let's look at verse 12. And he says that we, his disciples, will do the works that he did, and greater works than these. So what we see here is that Philip is doing the same things that Jesus did. Jesus cast out a demon in the synagogue. Jesus cast out a demon uh, uh, of, the, of the young boy. Again, in Mark chapter 9, they thought it was a demon that was causing his epilepsy. Jesus cast the seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. Jesus, throughout the scriptures, the gospels, we see that he cast out the demons. There was an enmity between him and the devil and the devil's minions. So many people did that. He did that with many, and many paralyzed or crippled people were cured. He cured the young man who was lowered through the roof of his paralysis. He cured the man at the pool of Siloam who had been crippled for 36 years. And Jesus did this. Now, Philip is doing this. Now, remember, Philip probably was Greek by birth rather than Hebrew by birth. Philip was Jewish by religion. And Philip was not one of the 12 apostles. Philip was one of the seven deacons. So the deacons, in addition to the distribution of, of the goods and services to the people, also preached. Isn't it really interesting that Philip was able to do this? Now, how was he able to do this? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this goes back to this again. Jesus in 7 tells them that they don't, they're not going to know when, he, when he's coming back again. He's, but he says, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit, which will come on you. And then you will be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout Judea and Samaria, and indeed to the ends, remotest end of the world, earth. So what Jesus is saying there is that the primary function of the apostles and uh, carrying that on to everybody who is a Christian, who is a follower of Jesus, is to bear witness not only to Jesus's resurrection, but also to the whole lot of his public life. And there are a variety of scriptures that you can find on that in the note in the Jerusalem Bible about that. 
So, and I'm going to go back to that John chapter four, uh, 14 and reread it because I found the scripture here. It says, in all truth, I tell you that whoever believes in me will perform the same works I do myself and perform even greater works because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Is that chapter, chapter uh, verse 15. Does that mean that uh, if, if I want a new car for myself or for somebody else, Jesus is going to do that? That's not necessarily in Jesus' name. Remember, the Hebrew concept of coming in someone's name was in his nature or someone who had been appointed by him to speak his word. Jesus isn't necessarily going to speak the word that somebody should be getting a new car. But when we say things in the name of Jesus like that, he is going to hear it and he's going to grant it. So there was great joy in that city. I mean, it's the word joy means just extremely glad, extreme gladness. Now, the next thing that is very interesting to me is that now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, surprise, surprise, guys, it, it's happening. They sent Peter and John who went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. Wow. Let's go back to uh, Acts chapter 10 where Peter is in the house of Cornelius. You remember Peter was praying or was preaching rather and he was preaching with such force and the people were so attentive and so open to what Peter had to say that the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they were showing the manifestations of receiving the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues. So Peter at that point said, how can we withhold water baptism from these people whom God has actually chosen? Now again, here is a place where they weren't even people that, that had converted to Judaism. These were pagans in, its, in a real sense. And so there's Peter. So they received the Holy Spirit first through Peter and then they received water baptism. In this particular case, in the case of Philip, they received the water baptism first, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. But that happened to them, it says they laid hands, on, he, then P, John and Peter laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Some of us who are, who are Catholic might see in this that Although a deacon can baptize, a deacon cannot perform confirmation. And neither can a priest unless he's being authorized if he's doing it in the name of his bishop. It was the bishops, and Peter and John were the first bishops of the church. So think about that a little bit. Does that mean that I can't pray for somebody to receive the Holy Spirit? Yes, I can. And I can pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them. I can pray for a release of the Holy Spirit within them, but I can't give them confirmation. What's your experience? What is your level of comfort? Are you willing to go out and stretch yourself as Philip did? Are you willing to go out and preach, maybe with a word, maybe with your life, the life that Jesus has in mind for all of his people. Some of us are and some of us aren't. Some of us just aren't comfortable with that and they, we, we don't believe it's going to be happening anymore like that, like what we see in the book of Acts.
but I don't, as I understand what Jesus wrote or spoke and that John, that John wrote about him, it's supposed to be happening today just as it did then. That's not always happening, but it should be. Let's look at the, the, the second reading, which is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. <clears throat> Beloved, sanctify yourselves. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctify. That word means to make holy. So Peter is saying to these people, you've already got Jesus dwelling in your heart, but have you made him holy in your heart? Have you set him apart? Have you cleaned out the house so that it is a fit dwelling place for Jesus to reside? Is it cluttered up with things of this world, things that you desire that go beyond what God wants in your life? Get your house in order. And, and this is a, a scripture that I believe uh, that uh, you hear frequently uh, from a number of priests. Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks the reason for your hope. Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks for a reason for your hope. Peter is saying that we need to evangelize. But first of all, what is hope? Hope doesn't mean that you just sort of wish it happens. Hope in this passage really means that you have a trust that God is going to act in your life in a way that is best for you. And if you do have that, then be willing to share it with other people so that they can have the action of God in their lives in such a fashion that they can have the hope and the joy that you have to do that. But he says, but do it with gentleness and reverence. Don't beat them over the head. Don't act smug. Act like a servant of God, knowing that it is God who does the work and you are just the instrument, the tool that is doing that. I mean, how do you do that? You do that by keeping your conscience clear. So how do you do that? So that when you are maligned, those who defame you, your good conduct in Christ may themselves be put to shame. You do that by keeping, by not doing, living your life. Let's look at another passage from Peter. This is 1 Peter 2, 19 and 20. It says, if you see, you see if there is merit in awareness of God, you put up the, with the pains of undeserved punishment, but what glory is there in being beaten, uh, putting up with a... Let me start over. You see there is merit if, in awareness of God, you put up with the pains of undeserved punishment. But what glory is there in putting up with a beating after you've done something wrong? The merit you s in the sight of God is putting up with it patiently when you are punished for doing your duty. And I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not realize that you are a temple of God with the Spirit of God living in you? We are temples of God corporately as a body of Christ. 
but also individually. And we are, if we're a temple of God, then we should have nothing in that temple that is not godly. So all the things that we have there that shouldn't be there, uh, it should be gotten rid of. But the get rid of the things of the flesh and the world. And remember, too, that, that all of this thing about having the Spirit in you isn't all about me, the me. It is what you can do for God with doing that. And the other thing that's interesting here, Peter doesn't say, if you are maligned. He says, when you are maligned. So it's very important that we understand that. And he said, he goes on here and says, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is the will of God than for doing evil. And the reason you do this is because Christ also suffered. And it's very important that we understand that, that we are imitating Christ when we suffer. Now let's look at the, the responsorial psalm for just a second. And the responsorial psalm is from Psalm 66. And it says... The response is, let all the earth cry out to God with joy. Why do we do this? Because salvation is for the whole world, not just for the Jews. And I think there are probably very few of you who are listening to me who were out of the, are out of the Jewish heritage. Now, I'm going to talk about a verse down about the second stanza. It says, he changed the sea into dry land. Through the river they passed on foot. This is a deliverance. This is talking about the passage from Egypt, which is a type of sin, to a purification in the wilderness, which sometimes is translated as pasture, and eventually to the promise. But to get to the promise, they had to go through water again. So it's, it's a journey through water of, the, of baptism in the first place, a passage into a purification process and a passage through to the promise that God has for us. And then he says, Hear now all you who fear God while I declare what he has done for me. Do we understand what God has done for us? Are we willing to declare to the world around us what God has done? Now, I appreciate very much your listening to me today, and I hope that you have a very good week and a very good preparation for the Feast of, of the Ascension and Pentecost, and we'll talk again next week. Let me know what you think of these, if there's something you think I should be doing differently or if, if you're, uh, there's something that I could add that would be helpful to you. Thank you so much.